Let me pray once more. Father, I, <clears throat> I want to say thank you and, and amen for what's already been prayed. We, we do, and it is right for us to, to pray for the Ukrainians and to pray that their resistance would be stiff and successful. You, you do free us in your word to pray. May their guns find their marks. And so we do. So we do. We pray that you would answer that prayer however you see fit. We pray that you would bring peace. Pray that you would bring peace there. And in the other nations that were mentioned where our brothers and sisters today face um, life and death, please bring peace. And we also know that we are in a cosmic war and that these wars are evidence of the ongoing cosmic war that has been going on since the garden. And we know that we as a church are but one of your little platoons in your larger army in this war. And we also know that <clears throat> wars will not cease. You promised us this. Wars will not cease until you come and you fully reign, King Jesus. So we pray, will you come, and will you come right quick? But until you come, I pray now, will you enable us? Will you give us your spirit? Will you give us wisdom? And will you work through people now to organize ourselves such that we would be a resilient platoon in your army so that we would not run from the field or be scattered by the enemy's um, actions against your glory, but that we would be useful in your hands, that we would be effective in the war. So please lead us now. Please fill me with your spirit. Guide my words. Constrain my words. Grant us wisdom from your word and lead us. This is, this is your church. You own it. You bought it with your blood. You created it by your resurrection from the dead. This whole thing, it's yours. So I am, I am only here today as your under-shepherd seeking to speak your word. So will you fill me and lead us in how we pray? Amen. <clears throat> well, <clears throat> indeed, we, we are uh, a little platoon in the army of God. That's, that's who we are. And... This, there, there are um, temptations and trials that come when you succeed sometimes. There are blessings that come, and those blessings that come from, from following God, from being faithful to His commands, and by being courageous in faith and, and taking steps in faith, good things can happen. Good things happen, but when good things happen, those very good things can become trials and temptations. And so then in every season, in every situation, a good military unit will keep its eye on the ball. What is its mission and what is the, the vision that it is to be called to? I, I actually don't like those words, mission and vision. I think, you know, they're so overused to the point of triteness, you know, I, I just... I almost despise them. <laughs> I'm not even sure why I'm using them because so often, you know, they're created in some far-off boardroom and then placarded on the walls and then never referred to ever again. <laughs> um, however, they're the words that we use and they are worth using and they're worth considering them in a biblical way 
what is our vision and what is our mission? And I, I define vision as what is the preferred future that we want to go towards? What is the preferred future vision? And mission is therefore then how are we going to work to get there? Mission and vision, very simple. Um, but in every situation, in an effective unit, an effective platoon in the Lord's army must remember what is that preferred future and what is therefore the mission that we are called to. And, and so often, so often, the, the being faithful to God will result in blessings and success, but then it's that success that often can bring its own problems and that can distract us from that vision and mission. We have to keep our eyes on the ball. So today, what I want to do in Acts 6 is observe the early church's vision and mission and their, the result that they experienced in staying focused, keeping their eye on the ball. And for our purposes, what I want to do is observe specifically how they stayed undistractedly focused on the main thing, on their vision and mission. So first, the passage. The, bu- the book of Acts, if you're not familiar with it, is a, is a history of the early church written by Luke. And the church at this point in Acts 6 is growing, just like ours. Well, not just like ours. They were growing explosively. But they were growing. And in the midst of that growth, verse 1, a complaint arises. The language here implies not just like a tepid, like, like a, an uproar, an uproar. <clears throat> and in those days, there was no welfare system. So the church took it upon itself to take care of its own widows. In those days, to be a widow meant you often lived in poverty. So the source of the uproar was that some felt or observed that some of the Hellenist widows, meaning either of Greek descent or Greek speaking as their first language, were not getting the same daily portions that the Hebrew Hebrew widows were. So um, there's, there's some, they feel like there's some preference that's being shown along racial and ethnic lines. Imagine that. <laughs> and the language here implies that the entire church was starting to divide this way. So, so picture some Greek 20-somethings yelling at the Hebrew 20-somethings, you know, my dear old grandma's not getting enough food, and yours is, you only care about Hebrews, you Hebrew, you know. Imagine someone talking that way to someone else all through history. The church is literally, before the elder's eyes, dissolving from one body into our natural earthly tribal camps. At their very moment of tremendous growth and success, the church is on the verge of turning into every society in history, splintered, divided, just like ours. Satan wasn't strong enough to beat God in open combat at Calvary, so he defaults to slicing up Christ's bride, the church. So that's the problem, verse 1. That's all verse 1. Nothing surprising here has been happening whenever cultures intersect since the beginning of time. What is different, what was out of the ordinary here, what was new, was that the problem got solved, verse 2. Problem got solved. The 12 apostles who who functioned as the elders of the new church called the full number of the disciples together. And that word full number implies that they had some way of knowing who had standing in the church to be involved in decisions. 
So we follow that same principle. We just call it with the modern word membership. But the elders wisely identified the real problem underneath the presenting problem that our only power, our only power that we, the church, have is endangered if we, the elders, become distracted to focus on this problem. The only power of God in the world for salvation, for Jews and for Greeks, Paul says in Romans 1.16, is the gospel. And therefore, on the one hand, this problem of conflict between Jews and Greeks must be solved. And yet it can't be solved by us because we must remain devoted to proclaiming this same gospel, this same word in prayer. It would be morally wrong for us, they say. It's not right for us to get distracted from this one main thing. We of all people know that it is the gospel it is the gospel that is the, words, the world's only hope, the only hope. Therefore, it would be evil of us, actually. That's what they mean here when they say it's not right. They say it would be evil of us to neglect it because we of all people, and we are the only people who know this. So it would be evil of us to neglect it and be distracted by this problem, but this problem's got to get solved at the same time. Both are true. So then... Verse 3, having called the full number of the disciples, they address the brothers. This is really interesting here. By the term brothers, I believe they meant men as the head of each household represented. This did not mean that the women had no voice. In fact, we read elsewhere in Scripture that women had a profoundly important voice in the early church. Scandalously so. Scandalously so. The, the women of the church actually had more of a voice than women have had throughout history. And, and how would that happen here? Well, it would happen here by husbands doing something at home that theologians call talking and listening to their wives. <laughs> <laughs> and then the male heads of households would vote. And the apostles charged the men with selecting seven men, seven being a, a good, perfect number, and these seven men would be appointed to a specific duty. Verse 1, the daily distribution to the widows. They would literally, verse 2, serve tables. The word serve here is literally the word diakonoi, where we get the, the title deacon. And these guys would literally serve as the head waiters, making sure the widows received their daily distribution of food. And the apostles... Um, give them qualifications. They were to be men, verse 3, of good repute. Reputation is meaningful. It, it tells you something. It doesn't tell you everything, but it tells you something. Very important. They were to be of good repute, full of the Spirit, meaning that they were able to see with the eyes of God into whatever the issue is. They were able to see with the eyes of God down to the heart of the matter. So they were to be full of the Spirit. And number three, they were to be full of wisdom. Having seen what's what, they were able to act with a love in that situation that was wise, a wise love with the mind of God. They didn't have to be good at bread making. They didn't have to have experience in the restaurant business. They needed to be trustworthy, godly, and wise because this was more than an organizational problem. It was an ethnic problem, a justice problem, a love problem, a reputational problem, and most of all, a problem that could potentially destroy this new growing thing called the church. It's an immensely important moment. 
And if the church wasn't destroyed, it could at least render it impotent. Verse 4, if the, if the apostles could not devote themselves to the main thing, prayer and the ministry of the word, they, they knew that, that, that they would be rendered impotent in this cosmic war. And knowing that they're in a cosmic war, they, they know what their weapons are, weapons of the spirit, because this is a spiritual war, and therefore they know that they have to keep their attention focused on the weapons that God has given them, prayer and the ministry of the word, preaching and proclaiming bread and wine, a risen king and his beautiful bride. Those are the weapons, and they have to stay focused on those. They have to. So they, they call everyone together. They, they give them this charge. And what they said, verse 5, seems to please everybody. The church seemingly is pleased that they're both let in on the problem and entrusted with determining the solution. And the congregation shows great wisdom. All the men named in verse 5 have Greek names. All the men... Uh, would be men that those widows would probably delight to be served by and would feel protected by and loved by. And so, verse 6, the congregation sets the men before the elders and the elders lay hands on them, commissioning them for the duty. Thus, all the congregation now knows these guys have the authority now, but authority for what? Authority to serve us. The authority to serve us. So here we see the reverse structure of hierarchy in Christ, in the church, that those who are given authority do not lord it over each other, but follow Jesus's path. The more exalted the title, the more low we get and wash each other's feet. And the problem, verse 7, gets solved. The word continued to increase. Notice here Luke's Luke's vision here, Luke's focus is not on the church, not that the church increases, it's that the word increases, and so their numbers multiply greatly. But now, with a new wrinkle, now a great many priests become obedient to the faith, not just standing off on the side, but obedient to it, sincerely so. Which begs the question, why, why this? Why, why did this problem getting solved draw in the priests? We'll come back to that at the end. But for now, we need to see a few principles here because it seems that as the church spread from Jerusalem, it adopted this practice of naming deacons wherever the gospel went. For instance, when Paul writes to the Philippians, he addresses that letter to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers, or another word for elders, and deacons. By this time, the deaconing role of the seven in Acts 6 has become more like an office. And then, of course, in 1 Timothy 3, Paul gives further qualifications for both elders and for deacons, and for deacons. And, and those qualifications are just an enlargement upon the three we've already seen here. And then, interestingly, in Romans 16.1, it seems that Paul entrusted the transport of his very letter, the letter to the Romans, to a woman named Phoebe whom he describes as a servant or deaconess of the church in Kencray. Now, you, you may have been in a church before with only elders. That's been Grace Church, our church, for a number of years. Or a church with only deacons, with one pastor. And interestingly, 
you think about roles in the modern church, the role that's most difficult to justify can, from Scripture, can you guess which one it is? It's mine. It's mine. It's, it, the word pastor is mentioned once in Ephesians 4, and then only the, the role is mentioned only in passing in 1 Timothy 5.17, and the word isn't even used there, but it mentions their elders who rule well and work hard at preaching and teaching should be worthy of double honor, in other words, to be paid. So if you really want to be biblically literal in referring to me, you'll refer to me as the DH, you know, the, the double honor elder. Because that's really, that's the closest we can get. So it seems that there are really only two offices in the church, elders, with some being given double honor, and deacons. So what I want to do now is look more closely at each of these roles and consider them in their relationship to each other and consider what could be the result for us in the future by taking the step of developing a, a deaconship in our church. Well, the elders here, they boil down their role to two basic purposes, prayer and the ministry of the word. Their mission is to rule, to rule over the church, but they do it with prayer, with ministry of the word. Now, at first glance, it would seem that they are applying their mission fairly narrowly. You know, that we're, we're separate. We're, we're above such mundane matters as waiting on tables. You know, that's Maybe the first glance is what it feels like. You know, that's, that's beneath us. We don't want to get our hands dirty with the rough and tumble things of this world. You know, we, want to, we need to sequester ourselves back from such things and be, be centered on God and the gospel, only on, only on gospel issues. You'll, you'll hear people say that today. You'll hear churches or ministers say, well, you know, is that really a gospel issue? You know, you, you ask a pastor or an elder, Elder Joe, what do you think about the Keystone Pipeline issue? What do you think about the war? Should I own a gun or not? What about masking? What about BLM? What do you think about Trump? What do you think about Biden? And you'll often hear, well, that's not a gospel issue. We want to be focused on the gospel. Well, and that's one way of looking at it. But there is another way, and it's the one that I'm convinced that these first Christians had, these elders, these apostles, and we get a hint of it from their preaching throughout Acts, throughout Acts, the disciples preach as much about the resurrection as they do the cross, maybe more. I should add it up, but I, I think it may be actually be more because they saw Jesus risen from the dead. And what that meant was that Jesus is Lord and King over everything, period, period, over chicken sandwiches and baseball and wine selection and marital intimacy and online kitten videos and dating and hairstyles and TV watching and the Keystone Pipeline and war and gun ownership and masking and everything else. He is Lord. He is King. Everything. Therefore, to the question, well, is this a gospel issue? They, I think they would have replied, well, is it an issue? Yes, <laughs> then it's a gospel issue. <laughs> there, I don't believe there were any hard lines for the first Christians, first Christians between whatever this issue is and the lordship of Christ. 
They sought to see all the world with new eyes in the light of the resurrection of Jesus, risen and reigning as king. Everything. Which, which is hard work. It's hard work. It takes effort applied over time to understand the, the true nature of a thing, of an issue, and, or people, most of all, to understand the true nature and then to comprehend how the gospel in the Bible and the royal law of God frame it and instruct us in, in how to address that thing, that issue, that person. It's hard work. It's hard work, for instance, in the realm of art to, to, to comprehend the unchanging objective beauties of God and then to transpose those beauties into a medium like a paint canvas. It's hard work to do that. Hard work. But this is the ministry of the word to apply the reality of all that Christ is for us to all of life. That is the ministry of the word. It is not narrow. It is everywhere. It applies to everything. Is it an issue? It's a gospel issue. But our generation, our generation is steeped in relativism, much more than we realize. We Christians too, relativism being the belief that there is no objective standard, that everything is relative. And we, we have been indoctrinated in relativism, we Christians, we American Christians. That's why we Christians think that everything in the church should be simple and easy. Every chair should have an easy button. Um, that's us, because relativism is what we've been taught. It's the water that we've been swam in. It's what you learned at Behemoth University. It is everywhere. Speaking of university, if, if you study today almost any of the humanities, you will spend one-fifth of the time to complete your degree than you would have had to 50 to 100 years ago. One-fifth of the time. Why? Because when everything's relative... There's no hard work involved. In fact, you probably get better grades if you get more high and just spit out more jargon. And then here you go, A+. Plus. <laughs> that's state you today. And that's, that's what we've been indoctrinated in. That's the water we've swam in, the waters of relativism. But if Jesus is risen from the dead, then it's relativism that needs to get thrown back into the grave. But then it takes time to draw lines from the unchanging nature of God to whatever this, this thing is, to the questions that face us today, like, should women be drafted? Is there such a thing as a just war? Or here's one, what is a woman? <clears throat> is there an objective standard or not? And then it takes time and it takes effort to apply this to others, it takes time to sit by the fire and talk about what marriage is and isn't with someone. It takes time to sit by the bedside and listen to a dear sister's final confession before she, and, and offer her the forgiveness of the gospel before she meets her maker face to face. It takes time to, to sit and, and, and stand on the front porch and just weep with those parents who cannot figure out their daughter's eating disorder. It takes time. It takes effort. It takes wisdom. It takes thinking through issues. It takes time to walk at a human pace with other human beings and pray for them. 
to bathe it all in prayer, to pray for each one of you by name. That's what the elders do. Each one of you by name, as particularly and, and specifically as we know how. It takes time to do this. It takes time to go before the Lord and ask the Lord, what is the little bit more of grace, Father, that you would have me give to this one person in the next little bit of their life? That's what we're up to. That's what he called us to. It takes time. It takes work to see all that Christ is for us for all of life. But that's what he's called us to because he's risen from the dead, because he's king. So, so if, if, we, if we do this, and, we, and the elders are seeking to do this, to follow this path, if we do this, we trust God will most likely grow his people as he did in the early church. And then we will need to handle that growth wisely. Wisely. It is our, it is our commitment it is our strong desire that no matter how many people we have here at Grace, we, we never want the vine to outgrow the trellis. We never want more people than we, we are able to shepherd well in the eyes of the Lord. And like the early church, we, we too have our challenges. We, we have for a church our size um, what I would call a, an exceptional number of adults who are handicapped in some way. And we don't want to ignore that. We want to embrace that because that's, that's part of God's call upon our life as a church. But in order to do that well, such that no one feels um, that they or someone else are being treated unfairly or neglected, and, and at the same time that the elders don't feel distracted from their work of prayer and the ministry of the word, it will be, it seems to us, required of us to set aside a few people in the future who are well-respected, spirit-filled, and wise, able to handle these challenges and to do it well, to do it well. There's other places where distraction or disharmony can take root. For instance, strangely enough, in the church kitchen, <laughs> I discovered, praise God for the people that God has used to bring these, these three things already in the life of our church. Um, it's been a beautiful thing, actually. Or, for instance, in the use and upkeep of facilities, how many church disputes have come over the color of carpets? Or, or in finances, money. Has there ever been a dispute over money? But in all of these, the elders are not going to rule. We're going to rule by asking you, the membership, to tell us who you think would meet these basic qualifications these basic qualifications, by the way, we should all aspire to. We should all be people who are well-respected, spirit-filled, and wise. But who is above average in these things? <laughs> who could fill these roles and see to it that these areas are handled such that they do not distract us from the main thing? We'll be asking you. We'll be asking you this. And we will not do this because we geek out over church structure and offices. <laughs> but because we value the work of Christ so much in the church and through the church. By, by the way, the name Acts of the book of Acts, it's not referring to the Acts of the church, the Acts of the disciples, the Acts of the apostles, or the Acts of the Spirit. It's referring to the ongoing Acts of Jesus through His Spirit in His church. That's what we value. That's what we want. That's what we so, so much desire 
So we, we value that so much, we are willing to alter the previous structures and ways of doing things in order to keep the main thing the main thing, just like the early church did. But again, we, like the early church, will not do this on our own. We will trust you, the church, to choose who would best fit those roles. It, it is fascinating when you look at Scripture how little the Bible says specifically about the running of the church, how, how few details. God is very content to give us doctrines of war and then entrust the tactics to us. Very interesting that way. Why is that? Because God designed us, because He delights to see us, His creation, think and exercise creativity and see the Spirit within us move. God delights to see that. So he gives us his doctrines of war, and he leaves the on-the-ground tactics for us to decide. So, but we must decide these tactics by keeping the main thing the main thing, prayer and the ministry of the word, to stay laser-focused on those. Too often Christians import ways of doing things into the church without first defining what is the main thing. We, we, it's so easy to do. You, you've worked for the state, so you, you import in the way the state does things in, in your department, or your section of governance, or your corporation, or your old church. We, it's so easy to do this without considering the main thing and our particular threats to the main thing here and now. And the main thing is, is all that Christ continues to do through His Word, through His people, in answer to our prayers. So yes, there, there is a hierarchy. The elders rule and lead on this work of, work of of prayer and the ministry of the word, and the deacons humbly serve, and the congregation submits to that rule and commissions those servants. And yet, given this hierarchy, it's all about Christ. It's all about Christ because it's, again, His work, His church, His acts in the world. It is His power working. It is His kingdom that we proclaim. It is, it is His glory shown in His grace in this kingdom that we oh so desire to be seen in the world. It is all about Him. All about Him. And, and this, if, if we can see this, if we can get this, then here is where the real enjoyment in serving comes from. And serving in the church is meant to be enjoyable, by the way. <laughs> it's meant to be enjoyable, both for the server and for everybody else. And here's where it gets really good. That when I see that it is all about Christ, that it is not, not about me, then wherever I am at in this hierarchy and whatever I'm doing, that thing is not an end in and of itself. That, it's not about that thing. It's about Christ. And so, even if on a normal hierarchy, we'd say the person pushing the broom is at the bottom of the hierarchy, but because if this person is pushing a, a broom in order to serve the, the movement and, and the working of the word in the world, then now this, this act of pushing the broom has now attained a transcendent cosmic importance. There is, a, there is an awesome flattening of importance, or I should say elevating, of all roles in importance when they are done for Christ. And in fact, in the church, the Bible tells us we flip it all over and we give more honor to those things that are, in the world's eyes, more dishonorable. 
There's a great leveling here of value. One's place on the hierarchy does not denote value if it is done for Christ. And from this happy, hard-working unity will come great things, great things. But, but only if we are a church who is all seeing the main thing, the proclamation of the word, the advancement of the word in us and through us, bathed in prayer, energized and empowered in prayer. And only if even all of that is pointed to the kingdom of our resurrected king. So when we begin to order ourselves aright, I, I, I want to say to you and to everybody else, watch out. Watch out. Because then our, our church will become more and more what it was meant to be, a living parable to the world of the new life that is found in Christ. That is that preferred future that we have. The church is meant to be a living parable of the good life, the new life that is found under the reign of Christ. That's why we do this. That's why we think about structure. That's why we want to order ourselves. We're meant to be a living parable of the world, of the new life, a living parable to the world of the new life that is found in Christ by living under His reign. This brings us back to the priests. Why is it why is it that the priests finally came in great numbers to the faith at this point, after this problem with the widows got solved? Well, let me ask you, how many other times in their career do you think the priests saw disputes <laughs> between Hebrews and Greeks in their churches, <laughs> in the temple? Maybe every single day. <laughs> and how many upteen number of things had they tried to solve the problem? But now it finally gets solved. And now they see it. Now they see that it's not just words. You see, I'm a priest. I, I specialize in words. I specialize in, in, in wordsmithing things. I, I specialize in, in the nuances of the law. But you have something different here. You don't just have words. You have a power here that solved a seemingly intractable racial problem that we have never been able to solve. And you did it. Okay, now I'm in. Now I'm in. You see, when the, when the church orders itself properly around the main thing, God's power is unleashed. God's power is unleashed in his people. And watch out. Watch out. Watch out for, for things to get solved in the church that could never be solved out there. If you want to know the, the fruit of, of relativism, just replay the tape of the last three years in our culture. That's the fruit of relativism. The last three years is a, is a, is a textbook running video of the fruit of relativism. So where in the world, you hear people ask this all the time, how can we solve these issues? People are looking for this everywhere. How can we solve racism? How can we solve ethnic strife? How can we solve the, the challenges that, that handicapped people face in the world? How can we solve the issues of economic injustice? How do we solve that? 
God has provided a parable, a living parable of the wor- to the world of where that solution is found. The words are under the reign of Christ. That's the words. But the church is the living parable, the living picture to the world. Here's the proof. Here's the pudding. <laughs> Here it is. So, in the, in the, in the coming uh, months, we're going to be rolling out uh, to the congregation um, particular steps regarding deacons, because we don't want to be, we, we want to handle the issues that we face wisely in a spirit-filled way, um, and in a way that enhances the reputation of the king and his kingdom in the world. We want to be that living parable that the world can see and wonder, how did you guys do that? What? How, how did you? Black and white people doing that? Praying together? Being best friends together? How did you do that? How did you solve the challenges that, that handicapped people face? How did you do that? Those people with, with intra- seemingly intractable addictions and lifestyle cycles that, that kept them entrapped in drugs or prostitution or sexual slavery. How did, how did you deal with that? Let me show you. <laughs> Stick around a while. The, the church is meant to be this, this uh, 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 sort of a snow globe to the world that says, here's what it looks like. Here's where real life is found. It's found under the the pleasant, pure, holy, righteous, strong reign of the risen King Jesus. That is what we are after. That is what we pray for. And we will continue to take further steps towards this in the coming months. So let me pray about this now. Father, I... I thank you that what, on the one hand, what you have charged us to pursue is, um, well, it is actually, just looking at human history, utterly impossible. If we were to just go by past humanity's past performance, the things that we are talking about today are intractable and are impossible to solve, actually. But when we look at you, and we look at your power, and we see that you are risen from the dead, and we taste of your kingdom, and we taste and see that you are good, oh, we know that with you all things are possible. With man this is impossible, but with you all things are impossible. So though the world seems to darken, though the world seems to become more insane day by day, I am very optimistic, not because of me, not because of this church, but because of you working in this church. Many people in our communities, many of our neighbors, they are looking for a refuge. They are looking for a place of sanity, a place of hope, a place of rest. I pray that you would draw them in, that they would find it under your sweet and pleasant reign your rule 
for us. So please do this, I pray. Please work among us. Please organize us wisely according to your wisdom that we would be that refuge, I pray. Amen. And receive the benediction. I, I don't know what tomorrow holds for any of us. I don't know what this week holds for our culture, our nation, our world. But I know that we can look at whatever it is, both with hope and with strong confidence. Why? Because of what we just sang. The risen one is risen, and he has overcome, and he will overcome. So take heart, Christian. Take heart, take confidence in the fact that you serve a risen king. Go, resting in that truth. Amen. Thank you.